Good morning. <laughs> We're going to do the whole Gospel of Matthew today. So, with that, what a great way to get our Lord's Day started, coming in, in prayer. Just out of curiosity, uh, how many of you came to the prayer time? I'm not taking attendance. How many would do that once a month? Okay. Thank you. Uh, Gospel of Matthew. Let's pray for a moment and then we're going to... Uh, there, there's some fascinating stuff to talk about through Matthew. So let's go to the Lord. Lord, we come to you now thankful to begin our Lord's Day, first of all, in prayer. And now to uh, look at least in, in broad strokes at the Word of God, at the Gospel of Matthew, your incredible Gospel given to believing Jews to show them that the King in whom they have believed is the true King, the true Messiah, descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be drawn toward the Gospel of Matthew this morning because it tells the greatest story, the story of our King. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, here we go. We're going to go through a lot. If I... Uh-oh, there we go again. <laughs> there we go. Uh, let's, let's start off introducing this. Uh, the title, The Gospel According to Matthew, that's the, that's the title. It's never been... Uh, by the way, none of the Gospels have ever been known by any other titles. The author is clearly Matthew. The authorship of Matthew has never been questioned until uh, liberal theologians of the 19th century. And they think that they know more than the guys who saw it happen 18 and a half centuries earlier. Mark and Luke uh, use the name Levi, and Matthew refers to himself as Matthew uh, because he was a tax collector. It's probably a name that he used of himself to identify himself as an outcast, as one who needs the grace of God. He never refers to himself as Levi. He never refers to himself by his Jewish name. And so it's a name of humility that he uses. He refers to himself as, as Matthew. Um, people often say that the Christian should never refer to himself as a sinner saved by grace, but uh, the fact is that's what Matthew did all through his gospel. He refers to himself as his sinful tax collector name to never forget. His audience is primarily Jewish. This is very, very clear throughout the gospel, and we'll see this uh, in numbers of ways. You have Jewish uh, vocabulary, things like... Uh, uh, the, the Father in Heaven, 15 times. The Kingdom of Heaven, uh, 32 times. You also have some untranslated Aramaic terms, such as raka and korban or korbanus. Uh, those are Aramaic terms that a Jew reading this would know, but maybe a Gentile not necessarily. You also have the Jewish uh, genealogy. Um, <clears throat> the Jewish genealogy in Matthew 1, uh, one, one scholar said it was Quote, calculated to put a Gentile audience to sleep, but vital for a Jewish reader. And we joke about that, don't we? That Why are the genealogies there? Well, if you're a Jewish reader, knowing that Messiah must come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, you're very interested in this. So the genealogy is very, very important. Matthew could almost be subtitled uh, Third Chronicles because it's really the last uh, in the chronology um, Second Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew canon, last book in the Hebrew Bible, but 
Third Chronicles just picks up where Second Chronicles left off. So it's, a, it's been a nickname used by some because Matthew picks up right at the end of the Old Testament history. And we've often joked that so that we don't have too big of a division between Testaments that we ought to maybe tear out that blank page that's between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew because the story simply continues. Also, we know this is a Jewish audience because there's a lot of uh, presupposed Jewish information uh, whenever I've preached in the Gospel of Matthew, you sometimes have to give a lot of uh, information to us Gentiles to understand what's being said. You have to give some updated uh, understanding of what a Jewish audience would see. Now, this might not seem a, like a big deal, but um, the date of writing is very, very important. It was written between eighty, forty, and 50, meaning that People who read the Gospel of Matthew had seen Jesus in person. They knew who he was. This is a gospel written just years after the, just a few years after the ascension of Christ. But this is important for uh, three reasons. First of all, we can place it as being written between the events of Acts 8 and Acts 12. So that's, that's important for us. You can, you can put it right in there between the events of Acts 8 and Acts 12. It's also important, secondly, because it's the first of all the canonical Gospels written. It's the very first Gospel. It is the, the first written account of the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's the first one. And so this is where the majority of the church first learned to understand the life of Christ. But there's a third reason that the dating of the writing is so important. There is an entire... Um, system of thought in theology, um, specifically in what is called uh, textual criticism. That doesn't mean you think something's bad. It just means to analyze the text. But in the theological area of textual criticism, there's an entire uh, realm of thought that is called Markan priority. And I've got a whole lecture on this that I'll do sometime uh, in the near future But Markan priority basically says that the Gospel of Mark was written first and then Matthew and Luke kind of copied elements from the Gospel of Mark plus they used other sources. Now you might say, who cares? That's the dustiest fact I've ever heard in my whole life. The reason that's important is because that goes along with a system called source criticism. And source criticism says that what we have in the Gospels is a secondary source. The real truth are in the sources that we've never read. As a matter of fact, they've made up some documents. They've made up a document called Q, where supposedly uh, Mark and Matthew and Luke got a lot of information. They've also made up a document called M and a document called L, meaning secondary sources that Matthew used and secondary sources that Luke used. All of this assumes that the Holy Spirit was incapable of having four separate accounts written by four different men from four different vantage points and have them all connect exactly perfectly, that they must have copied this from somewhere. And again, you say, well, that sounds so dusty and so dry. You know what the outcome of this belief system is? The outcome is is that those who believe this basically believe that there are 12 places in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we know for certain are true. And everything else is suspect. 
And, you'll, and the reason I'm telling you this is because if you pick up a commentary, you're trying to study one of the Gospels, you will see scholars referring to the, to the document Q as if it exists. Nobody has ever read Q. You want to know why? Because it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Nobody has ever read M because it doesn't exist. Nobody's ever read L because it doesn't exist. The assumption is, is that Mark's gospel is shorter, it's simpler, and so Matthew must have taken that and expounded upon it, expanded it, and added more material to it. Wrong, 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 wrong. And I think Matthew, uh, if he were standing here, would say, yeah, I, I, I'll tell you when Mark was written. It was written 20 years after I wrote my gospel. Let me put it to you this way. Imagine that you're a publisher of a book and you published a book in 1995. And all of a sudden, a book published this year says that you were quoting them. Well, that, that would make you upset. Well, we should be upset at this um, because it is clearly the Lord's will that Matthew was the first gospel written. Uh, by the way, what have scholars who put together our Bibles believed for about 20 centuries? Where is it in the Bible? It's first. I can't take that too far because it's probably Matthew, Luke, Mark, John um, in order. But everyone has always put Matthew first. And it wasn't until the mid-19th century that people started questioning this. So uh, I don't know about you, but if I was an investigator, some sort of a detective, and I was interviewing a witness and saying, now, did you see this event happened? Oh, yes, I saw it. Then I'm interviewing the second witness. Did you see this event happen? No, it was 1,850 years ago, but here's what I believe happened. Which one are you going to believe? I believe the ones who were there, not the ones who made up a theory because it fits with their denigration of Scripture and, and putting down of, uh, of the Gospels. And, and we'll do this in detail at some point, maybe here coming up soon. I have a whole lecture on, on the, uh, what's called the synoptic problem which isn't a problem at all. But I just want to make sure when you read the Gospel of Matthew, if you ever read, well, this was probably written uh, in 80 AD or maybe 100 AD because the same people who believe that Matthew copied uh, Mark, half of them don't even believe that Matthew actually wrote the Gospel. It's somebody else. He's a plagiarist uh, who just put Matthew's name on it. So when you see that Matthew is first, let it be okay. This is the first gospel that the church of Jesus Christ ever got their hands on. Now, put yourselves in the, in the, the hands of a, or, or in the, the uh, uh, footprints, the time of an, a first century Christian, call it 51 AD. And the guy that you work with has said to you, do you worship God? And you say, well, I don't know who God is. And this person who works with you shows you who God is through the Old Testament scriptures and then begins to explain that Messiah is promised in the Old Testament scriptures and you get excited about this and you say, well, I, how do I, who is this Messiah? And you say, well, his name is Jesus and here's his story. And then the, the, the co-worker says, why don't you come with me to our, to our church? Because in our church, we have a copy of the very first and in 51 AD, the only story of the life of Jesus Christ, and we're going to read from that. You're going to go running to that. And then the pastor would stand up, because in this day and age, no, everybody didn't have copies of scriptures. You went to church to hear the Bible read. 
and he takes a scroll, or in this day they did have books that were, they were kind of primitive, but he takes a scroll and he opens it and he says, the beginning of the gospel. And he begins to read from Matthew and you're blown away by the fact that you have an account of the Son of God in his life. So that's why for me, I take the dating of Matthew really seriously because it was important to the early church. It should be important to us. Now, now we've really got to move because we've got a lot of themes to go through. Matthew is a beast. It is an absolute theological masterwork. Um, It is a gospel, which is its own genre. Uh, It's a genre of literature that includes history. It includes theology. It includes narrative Um, all of these things. So we're going to go through the major historical and theological themes. And to be honest with you, this isn't even a comprehensive list. You, of course, have the theme of God. God the Father, spoken of 43 times. God the Son, 230 times. In fact, we could subdivide this. I didn't do it on the slide, but just for your information, he is called the Son, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of Man, who is Jesus, um, who is the Christ, who is the King of the Jews, the King of Israel. So you have all those mixed in there, the Son of God. Then you have the Spirit of God referenced 12 times. So it is a clearly Trinitarian book. You can prove the doctrine of the Trinity from the Gospel of Matthew alone. You have the historical and theological theme of the kingdom. And we would say that other than uh, Christ himself, kingdom is the theme of Matthew. And why is this important? Because if you were here for the beginning of our series on the Pentateuch, kingdom is the theme of the Bible. And so Matthew really progresses that kingdom theme. Why is it? Because Matthew introduces us to whom? To the king. And that that puts a pretty good... Uh, pretty good bite as far as evidence on the kingdom. You have the kingdom of heaven referenced 32 times. You have the kingdom of God four times, uh, just the kingdom 15 times, which by the way is one of the reasons we see this as a very Jewish book because you didn't have to explain to the reader what the kingdom is. The reader knows what the kingdom is. And then you have the king referenced eight times. Then you have the theme of the Old Testament. Matthew is saturated in the Old Testament from beginning to end. Now, I'll just give you some examples here. Um, be fulfilled, that Scripture might be fulfilled 12 times. It is written nine times. The Scriptures referenced four times. The Law referenced eight times. If you include direct quotes and uh, allusions, allusions, not illusions, but allusions to Scripture in Matthew, you're going dozens of times. Um, it's a, it's a toss-up between Matthew and Romans, which one has the most Old Testament um, in it. So you have God, you have the kingdom, you have the Old Testament. Just a few more, like seven. You have the teaching of Jesus. You have five great blocks of Jesus' teaching. Jesus speaks more than he acts in Matthew. That's the opposite of Mark. In Mark, uh, it's all action. There's two major discourses in Mark. In Matthew, you get five. And it's been often pointed out that the last word of God in the Old Testament is that he will strike the land with a curse or or there's different words translated that basically is with a curse. And the first recorded words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, blessed are the poor in spirit. That there's there's hope now. You can't get away from the fact that Jesus was a teacher and he was a preacher. You have the theme of discipleship. 
mathetes in various uh, forms of mathetes, disciple, used 73 times. This is the key term for those who follow Jesus in Matthew. And, and just a little technicality here, disciple is used three ways in all the Gospels. The first way is the technical way that means the 12 that Jesus chose. We refer to them equally as the disciples or the apostles because the Gospels go back and forth and do both. But then you have a broader term, disciples, mathetes, anybody who's following after Jesus um, and does so in truth. And then you have the third category, disciples, those who follow after Jesus but then fall away, who were not true disciples after all. So you have those three categories, but it's a major theme in the gospel. You have the theme of righteousness 26 times. Why is that important? Because when you have a king, he must be what? He must be righteous. And if you have followers of the king, they must be what? They must be righteous. And so you have that theme coming up quite frequently. You have the theme of the Jewish leaders and the people. Uh, Matthew talks about uh, Sadducees more than any other gospels combined, um, which, by the way, uh, is proof that Matthew wrote Matthew long before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now you go, well, who cares about that? Destruction of Jerusalem, 70 AD. Matthew talks about the Sadducees like crazy. Why are those two things important? Because after the destruction of Jerusalem, guess what happened to the Sadducees? They were gone and nobody cared about them. Nobody talked about the Sadducees. Um, It it would be like me uh, preaching a sermon on why... Uh, you should watch out for the, the evils of newspapers. How many of you have read a physical newspaper this morning? A few of you, maybe, nobody? Okay, it, it's, it's out of touch. It's out of date. And you might be going, well, I did, but I'm just not going to raise my hand. So, but you get, my, you get my drift. The Sadducees are, are irrelevant after 70 AD, but Matthew talks about them all the time. Thus, you have the early date of his writing. You have apathy and antagonism by the leaders against Jesus. It's, it's huge. It's intense in Matthew. You have the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, beginning the plot against Jesus. Um, but in the end, uh, they've persuaded most of the people of the land to turn against Jesus as well. So you have the Jewish leaders and the people. And you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about introduction to the New Testament and how the masses, generally speaking, worked for the, the nobles or the elders, the landowners. And so what the landowners said usually went because the, the living of all of the, the lower class, because there wasn't a middle class, there was an upper class and a lower class. And so the living of the lower class, it was to their advantage to go along with what the leaders said, which is kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's the choice we're faced with often. Then you have the theme of the Gentiles. And what's so interesting about the Gentiles in Matthew is that on the one hand, Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. And so I want you to picture a a believing Jew who's still struggling with the fact that God is saving Gentiles. And a lot of believing Jews didn't even think God was saving Gentiles. The debate in Acts 15 proves this, that they, they had difficulties with this. I could show you that the whole book of Romans is written to make sure that Jews and Gentiles understand that, uh, for example, uh, for uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for the Greek, meaning, meaning the Gentile. So you're reading this as a Jew, and oh yes, this is very Jewish. Oh, I like this. I got my yarmulke on and everything. This is so Jewish. 
But every time the Gentiles are spoken of, it's always in a favorable light. There's not one cut down of a Gentile in Matthew, and every time they're spoken of, they're the ones with the greatest faith. So what does that tell the believing Jew? It teaches the believing Jew in the universal church, the church of Jesus Christ made up of those of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that's got to tweak them a little bit, but ultimately, like, uh, like Peter and the apostles, they came to the conclusion in the early part of Acts that the Holy Spirit has been given to all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. Then you have, interestingly, the theme of the church. And you might say, well, how can you have the theme of the church? The church has not been inaugurated yet. Well, in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18, the Lord Jesus teaches on the church with issues that will be needed in the future. Um, looking ahead to the establishment of the church. Matthew 16, I will build my church. Matthew 18, the very first directive to the church, ironically, is to keep the church pure through church discipline. The very first directive to the church is purity through church discipline. So you have the theme of the church even before the church exists. Then you have the end times. Jesus speaks in in chapter 3, verse 7, of the wrath to come. Five times we have the judgment to come. Five times the age to come. And again, this is familiar terminology to the Jews when thinking and speaking of the messianic kingdom, an age of restoration and blessing. And, And incidentally, if you've been raised in, and it's not your fault if you have, but if you've been raised in a system that tells you that God is done with Israel, the, the Gospel of Matthew would beg to differ because the Gospel of Matthew uses very familiar, futuristic terms speaking to Jews about a kingdom that they will participate in as Jews, as Israel. And the rest of the New Testament certainly bears that out as well. Then we'll do one more theme, the miracles of Jesus. There's 37 total recorded separate miracles in the Gospels. John's gospel says they were too, num- too numerous to count. And the gospels, and I don't recall which one right off the top of my head, but uh, the entire area of, uh, of Galilee at one point, which is the northern province. Remember, you have, uh, you have Judea where Jerusalem is. You have in between Samaria and to the far north, you have Galilee. There was, at one point, Jesus was ministering in Galilee so effectively that there wasn't a single sick person left. No demonic possession, no sickness. And isn't that what we would expect in a, in a what we might call a preview of the coming kingdom? So-called healers today, why do, they, why do they fill auditoriums? Why don't they go to hospitals and empty hospitals? Because they're not real healers. But Jesus was, whatever version of hospitals they had, he emptied them all. The doctor's offices, if, if they had offices, were, were empty. They were out of business. And so the miracles are too many to count. You have 21 of those recorded miracles uh, in Matthew, 19 of them recorded in Mark, 22 in Luke, and 8 in John. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap with some. There's several miracles uh, uh, recorded in all four Gospels to be uh, very clear, the resurrection of Christ, the greatest miracle of all, and then the feeding of the 5,000, that's recorded in all four. But why did he do miracles? I gave you three reasons here. First of all, to confirm the reality of Messiah as the Old Testament predicted. 
It's one thing to say, I'm the Messiah. It's quite another thing to heal thousands and thousands of people in a matter of days, weeks, and months. Another reason is to give credibility to Jesus' words. So he would heal all day, and then he would sit down and speak. And what did people do? They listened by the tens of thousands because of his healing work. And then finally, as I mentioned a moment ago, it gives a preview of the coming kingdom of God with no illness, no death. Uh, and, and no, no uh, unrighteousness that's just prevailing all of the time. And so the, the miracles of Jesus really serve as a preview of what is to come. John eleven three. John the Baptist expressed doubt. I'm sorry, I believe this is Matthew eleven three. John the Baptist expressed doubt. He basically said, I thought I was preparing the way for Messiah and I was convinced it was you. I baptized you, but now I'm in prison. And so Matthew 11, John is basically wondering what's happening. Why are you not establishing the kingdom? John is having doubts. What did Jesus answer? He he sent messengers to him and he answered basically a list of the miracles he was doing to prove that he is Messiah, that the the lame are walking and the, the blind are seeing and so forth. So what's the purpose of the book? Sorry, it's a long purpose, but it's a long book. I have a, a two words put in a slash there. Jesus was slash is the promised Messiah and Israel's king who will establish the kingdom in the future despite Israel's past rejection of him. Jesus was and is the promised Messiah and Israel's king who will establish the kingdom in the future despite Israel's past rejection of him. Matthew 21.5, our key verse on the, the purpose Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, why do we say Jesus was and is the promised Messiah and Israel's king? He wasn't the king in past tense. He is Israel's king now. He continues to be the king of Israel. He continues to be Messiah and he will establish his kingdom. Now, why isn't he here? Well, in God's sovereign plan, his own people rejected him. His own brothers knew him not, as Isaiah 53 says, and so he was crucified. In chapter 21, verse 5, the, the scene of Jesus riding toward Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Uh, when I preached through Mark, I made the case that Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem. He rode toward Jerusalem. You can listen to that if you care about that minutia of detail. But that was really, really important because according to Zechariah 9, verse 9, that is the official presentation to Israel of her king. And remember, some children and a few faithful were putting down palm branches and shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, Hosanna is a word that just means save us, we pray. And so there were a few who believed, but how did Jesus ride toward Jerusalem end? With a big fizzle. Basically, he got off the donkey and walked to the temple. That was it. So it was what some have called the false coronation of the true king. The people didn't truly believe. If this was the true coronation of Messiah, what would have happened? What would have happened is what's going to happen. Celebration after celebration after celebration. That's what's going to happen when he comes for the final time. So he was the promised Messiah. He continues to be the king. Now we went ahead and did a little detail on the, um, 
the literary structure, just so I can show you, we've talked about chiastic structure enough for you to be familiar with that, that mirror image structure. And so we just wanted to just show you in very broad terms, and these slides will be online. But you have the birth of the king as the, the A of the first section. An angel of the Lord announces the birth of the king. The king is announced in a dream. The, the birth is announced in a dream. Um, there's fulfillment and there is the announcement of Jesus as the king of the Jews in chapter 2, verse 2. And then in the B section, you have the introduction to the king of Israel, chapter 3 through chapter 7, basically. You have the baptism of John the Baptist, uh, baptizing Jesus. You have uh, the mountain on which he sat to teach. You have the law and the prophets that he teaches on. Um, he begins to teach uh, the law as as applying to Israel at that moment. He teaches on divorce. He teaches on uh, treasure in heaven. He teaches on false prophets. And as the king, he has the authority to decide who his subjects are. And he near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives a kingly warning that if I didn't know you, you will depart from me. And that's the, the famous verse that we use to warn unbelievers all the time. You have the manifestation of the authority of the king is the C section. You have the, the, the uh, faith of a Gentile is commended. He's authoritative. You are a Gentile, but I commend your faith. You have the uh, compassion for the multitude. You have his ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in chapter 10. You have his admonition to take up your cross and follow him. He doesn't say, follow my father. He says, follow me. You have the admonition that if you want to lose, if you want to save your life, you must lose your life. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. That's authority. The very center section of the book, we would say, is the opposition to the king. The opposition to the king. And it's at this moment in the Gospel of Matthew that things begin to shift. Now you have the mirror image from the manifestation of the king's authority in the section uh, labeled C. You have C prime or C1, some would call it, the withdrawal of the king. He's pulling back. You have the faith of a Gentile commended again. You have compassion for the multitude again. You have the lost sheep of the house of Israel mentioned again. You have the command to take up your cross and follow me again. You have the, 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 the admonition that if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If, you want to, if you're going to lose your life, then you will save it. It's mirror image. And this is where we begin to see parables. Because Jesus, having withdrawn from his people who officially rejected him, when uh, he was up north, a, a, a group of the Sanhedrin, a representative group, came and said, we believe all the miracles you do are by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, that's it. You have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You will not be forgiven. You will die in your sins. And at that point, that is the official rejection of the king. Then you have the B prime section, the official rejection by Israel of their king. Remember the B section was the introduction of the king. You have baptism again. You have on the mountain he sat. You have the law and the prophets. He speaks on divorce again, treasure in heaven, false prophets, and depart from me. So he has the, the same speeches now with a little more intensity. And then finally, as opposed to the birth of the king, you have the death and the resurrection of the king. And once again, you have an angel of the Lord. You have a dream. You have fulfillment. And you have the king of the Jews presented. So this is a, a masterwork that the Holy Spirit inspired through the pen 
of Matthew. So what I want to do now is, as you're contemplating that, is I want to tackle um, three major interpretive issues in Matthew, because they're, they're ones that are important for you and, and I think will help you understand the book a little bit better. So let's tackle these one at a time. And the first one is the opening sentence. And I'm going to talk for about five minutes about this. And apparently the only notes I have are the words opening sentence. So you can take with this uh, what you want. But the opening sentence, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The debate is, is this the title of the book? It, It uses the Genesis formula that introduces the genealogies 10 times in Genesis. So it sounds very Old Testament like. But it's not the title of the book. It's the title of the introduction. The genealogy and the, ner- the birth narrative are part of the introduction as well. There's a title and purpose statement in all the other Gospels which gives us insight into the purpose of the book. If this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 5, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, how does that tie into the kingly theme of Matthew's Gospel? Just follow my logic here. Genesis 5.1, the book of the generations of Adam... In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That goes back to Genesis 1, not just 5. The image and the likeness of God, which means, yes, Adam reflects God's image because he was to represent God. So it's it's not just that there is a genealogy here. There's a, a deity of Christ issue here in that it goes all the way back to Adam, made in the image of God as God's representative, How did Adam do? He failed, right? Genesis chapter 5, yes, we have the genealogy. Yes, Adam brings forth children and the image of likeness of God passes on until chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 5, the intent of man is evil. Every thought. And so Adam fails. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, um, that's an introduction to the genealogy It tells us that the king will be established to rule over the earth who will do it right. And so the the book of genealogy, that sentence harkens back to Adam, what Adam forfeited by his sin. What did he forfeit? The rule of God as God's representative on earth. It will never be Adam. It will always be Christ. And then in chapter 1, verse 1, the son of David, Jesus as the son of David, is listed before the son of Abraham. What does that tell us? It tells us that we're starting to go toward a kingly theme. The very beginning shows how closely Matthew really sticks to the Old Testament. And by the end of chapter 2, um, we, we don't really know anything more about the, the kingly program. So the title of the book basically is all of chapter 1 and 2. If you've ever read any Puritans, they like to title their books with full sentences. An understanding of the doctrine of Romans as based upon the study of this particular pastor in this particular year, in this town, and in this city, colon. This study should, and you just go on and on, the title of a Puritan book takes forever. Well, consider Matthew 1 and 2 completely as the title. It is all introductory material. It's the title. Why is this important? Two whole chapters to make certain that we know one thing. Jesus Christ is the kingly heir, the son of David. That's what the whole introduction in Matthew 1 and 2 is all about, to make certain that we have identified him. 
Now, doesn't that make sense if you're a Jew and your whole eternity is, is, is hinging upon whether you get it right about Christ or not? You get it right about Messiah? And so very graciously, the Holy Spirit through Matthew gives two long chapters that says the one you're about to read about is the one. He is the son of David. So he continues on to have the legal title as king. And, and by the way, Interestingly enough, the legal title to the throne of Israel legally passes through Joseph and the line comes to an end. How many sons did Jesus have? Zero. So he will always be the king. He'll always be the king because he has no sons and he never will. Now, he's the firstborn among many brethren. He has lots of little brothers and sisters, right? But that means we get to be princes and princesses, not kings. So he is, the king, he is the king. So if you're, if you're wondering, why, what does that matter? Next time you read Matthew 1 and 2, see it all as an introduction to chapter 3 and following as proving that the one you're reading about is the one. Now this one might be a little closer to home. What is the nature of the kingdom in Matthew? What is the kingdom of God? This is still today a, a raging debate in even Reformed theological circles. Here's the key verse, Matthew 3, 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean it's here? Does that mean that, that the, the king is now here? Uh, there are those who believe that Christ is ruling uh, today on earth, but he's just doing so invisibly. Uh, I wish he'd do it a little bit more visibly, don't you? So what is this? Well, there's several options here. Some would say that the kingdom is personal and individual. That a person recognizes Jesus as king, that he's my king. But he's not the king, but he is my king. He's somebody that I'm loyal to. Uh, That's not wrong. It's just incomplete. Some take the future eschatological view. That this is speaking solely of the kingdom predicted in the Old Testament that Jesus suffered death because his kingdom didn't appear, and so the hope of the kingdom is gone for now, but the kingdom will appear. Again, not wrong, just incomplete. Some would say this is, they would take the realized eschatological view, end times view, that Jesus is the king. He established his kingdom at the first coming. Um, We're in the Old Testament predicted kingdom. The kingdom is now present. There is no future anticipation. Uh, There's only one small problem with that. Who would like to make an appointment to go see the king? There's one way you can do that. Die. And you have a full-on appointment. But the king isn't here. And so the realized eschatological view is very weak because I I don't know about you, just reading the news kind of tells us that the world is not getting better. The world is not getting more Christ-like. The world is not getting holier. It's going the opposite direction. So the realized eschatological view is weak and frankly it's based on Uh, based on the opinions of reformers from 500 years ago. Which, by the way, is based on Catholic tradition that the kingdom is now. Why is it important to Catholics that the kingdom is now? Because they're the ones running it, according to them. So um, you you ask a Catholic who knows a little bit about Catholic theology, um, what is the Pope really? The Pope is the king. He's the representative of Christ on earth. They call him the, 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 uh, the vicar of Christ, so to speak. So... 
it's important to Catholic theology, which carried over into Reformed theology, which still carries over today. And so we want to just let the Bible speak and not so much history. So the realized eschatological view of the kingdom is, is weak. Others take the two forms or aspects of the kingdom. That there's a present and future kingdom. The present kingdom is internal. The future kingdom is external that you can see. This view holds that both the nature and the timing of the kingdom are, are modified at times based on historical circumstances. Um, we would say, well, Christ reigns spiritually right now and later he will reign physically. And we understand that. Uh, a, a strict covenantalist view would say that the reign of Christ came spiritually, which will culminate when he returns and we go into the eternal state. There's no millennium, no rapture. The kingdom has already come. We just have that one final thing. The king has to be here. So basically that view says that the spiritual is present now and the physical will be present in the future. That has a lot of merit to it. And there is a lot of truth to that. And, and I think if you hold that view, um, you're, you're in, you could be in pretty good company. But then there's the view that says... The Old Testament prophesied kingdom, which has not come yet, is what the kingdom is. That there is a, a, a kingdom. But let's put some, let's put some uh, conditions on this. When Jesus came, the kingdom had drawn near. And he said that. Repent, John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, it's close. Now, in a certain sense, the kingdom of heaven came for a bit. Why? Because the king was here. And you could follow the king around. You could ask the king questions. You could find out what's going to happen. But what was one of the final questions that the apostles asked Jesus right before the ascension? When will the kingdom come? What was the prayer that Jesus commanded us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next verse? Your kingdom come. Why are we praying for that if it's already here? So there's an, there's an external element that it's coming. In Matthew, kingdom, every single time it's referred to, refers to the literal rule of Jesus as predicted in the Old Testament. It would take hours to go through every single reference to show you that, but every single time it refers to a literal reign of Christ on earth physically here. Now we will say this. Christ is building the kingdom roster He's adding kingdom citizens, but the kingdom hasn't yet come. The kingdom has It would be like this. It would be like uh, somebody bankrolls you to start a brand new company. And you have so much money that you can begin uh, building a, 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 a facility. You can build your factory. You can hire all your workers. You can start paying them paychecks. But you haven't actually pulled the trigger on going into business yet. You have everything getting ready to go. So what is the church age? The church age is God getting the kingdom ready to go primarily by adding to its numbers. That's what he's doing right now. And so again, if the kingdom had already come, why would Jesus teach us to pray your kingdom come? That, absolutely, that prayer makes no sense. You realize that someday when you pray to God, you will say, thank you that your kingdom has come. What a great prayer that'll be. So for me personally, I lean toward that last view pretty hard. The Old Testament prophesied kingdom. But I have some conditions, some caveats on this. Absolutely, there is an internal component to the 
to the kingdom. What, what's our internal component? Because we're called to obey the king. Just because we don't live in the kingdom yet doesn't mean we don't obey our king. We act like kingdom citizens now. We would also say that the kingdom of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament has a very distinct uh, physical presence of Christ aspect to it. So, so we have to look forward to that. That's not some crazy dispensational thought. That is the thought going all the way back to the Gospels. That's the thought going all the way back to um, Isaiah. You cannot wade through Isaiah and make it through two pages of the book without finding something about the kingdom that's coming and Messiah being here in person. So how do you get into the kingdom? I, I don't think you have to talk about two different forms of the kingdom. They're, they're bound together. You can't have a spiritual kingdom without a physical manifestation of the kingdom. The two have to go together. You can't have a physical kingdom without spiritual change because you can't be in the kingdom without something changing in you. So what is the point of the gospel of Matthew? You must be changed to enter the kingdom. You must be a follower of Christ. So, when you read kingdom, yes, you're a kingdom citizen, but the kingdom hasn't yet come. And so you pray, your kingdom come. And we'll do one more. This is the most debated passage in Christian history. And we'll see if we can do it in the next seven minutes. Well, maybe we won't do it at all. James, can we do the next slide? There we go. I think, I think my thing ran out of battery or something. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount a lot of ink and probably a little bit of blood has been spilled over the Sermon on the Mount. The theme of the Sermon on the Mount, we could say in very broad terms, is true righteousness. It's true righteousness. Jesus is teaching the essence of what the Old Testament called for in the lives of the saints. Did you catch that? He was teaching what the Old Testament called for in the lives of the saints, in those who were righteous by faith before God. Part of the reason he was doing this is that the disciples had been so mistaught the Old Testament by the Pharisees that Jesus has given them now a true understanding of the nature of righteousness. How did the Pharisees teach Old Testament? They taught it as external obedience pleases God. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it is the opposite of that. It is an internal reality of faith is that which pleases God. And so the question is, what kind of righteousness now must be displayed to show that you're a saint who will inherit the kingdom. What's expected of you? What, what good works will be there not to give you salvation, but to prove your salvation? I think it's very important to understand as we look at these approaches to the, to the Sermon on the Mount, the primary recipients are saved people. That second category of disciples, not just the 12, but to disciples who are saved, who are true followers of Christ, this isn't given for their salvation. So let me go through the common approaches to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. There's the soteriological approach, meaning do this and you will enter the kingdom. You might say, well, who cares? Because this is the predominant position of American evangelicalism. You, you find 10 churches and find a sermon on Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 or 1 through 4, and I'll bet eight of them will say, this is how you enter the kingdom. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, first of all, it was preached to those who are already believers. And it makes the Sermon on the Mount a works-based call to salvation. That if 
you are humble in spirit, and if you are gentle, and if you are merciful, then you may be admitted into the kingdom. That's a, that is a heretical view. The soteriological approach is patently wrong. Then there's what some call the penitential approach. That the sermon serves the same purpose as the law of Moses, to point out our sin and to push you toward the Savior. There's definitely merit to this because as you read, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, well, that's not me, I'm prideful. Um, blessed are the gentle, that's not me, I'm, an, I, I'm, I'm a horribly harsh person. Um, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, I wouldn't take a stand for Christ if my life depended on it. You can look at it and say, none of those things are me. And so it can push you toward salvation. So there is, there is a, some merit to that view that the Sermon on the Mount is a reiteration of the Old Testament law. That's true. But again, the primary audience are disciples who have already embraced Christ. Then there's the ecclesiastical approach, how the church is supposed to behave. Uh, problem with this, the church is never mentioned. This is not given to a corporate group. This is given to individuals. You have the kingdom ethics view, what people will be like in the kingdom. And there, again, there's truth to this because in the kingdom, all the true believers in the kingdom, and you recall, uh, as we've taught on this at other times, that at the end of the great tribulation, there will, be, uh, there will be believers who survive on earth, but they still have children after that. And those children will be little reprobates who give birth to other little reprobates. So down the road, this view breaks down, especially when you get to chapter 5, verse 10, what people will be like in the kingdom Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In the final kingdom, no one will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That will not happen. So, Sermon on the Mount must be a pre-kingdom reality. The kingdom has not come in its fullness. Then you have the, uh, the kingdom manifesto or constitution approach that this is, these are the governing rules for the coming kingdom. Well, okay, so if I'm giving you a sermon on how to act in year 300 of the millennial kingdom, you take notes, you go, my very notes are going to burn. You know, how am I supposed to apply this? I got a lot of things to deal with before then, like my own death for one thing. So it's inapplicable. And so I'm always suspect of any uh, view of scripture that makes it not apply to me. Kingdom manifesto doesn't work. What we would take is the historical approach. Now, uh, this, is, this is a little bit complex, so listen to some of the caveats on the historical approach. The Sermon on the Mount is directly related to the disciples at this historical moment as heirs of the kingdom. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. It already belongs to you if you're a believer in Christ. This is describing citizens of the coming kingdom. We would also say that even during this particular age, Jesus continues to call heirs of the kingdom to himself. So Sermon on the Mount continues to apply today. These are the, the qualities of somebody who is in Christ. You have the Great Commission. The Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus commanded disciples to teach all things that he has taught them. So in other words, we're to preach and teach the Sermon on the Mount if it's not applicable to us today, then one of those other views uh, it must be right, and, and we can't go with that because it makes it inapplicable. It also, asks, the historical, question, historical approach rather, asks the question, how is righteousness reflected in a kingdom believer? I think the easiest way to understand this 
is that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of a saved person. It shows the characteristics of the kingdom in the here and now. Now, it also shows the process of sanctification. This is even before the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples are to conform to this standard, um, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. Now, let me just point something out. I have one whole minute, so I'm going to point this out. In Matthew chapter 5, let's take the, key, the historical approach. Matthew chapter 5, these are the descriptions of a saved person. Somebody saved by faith. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, mourning your own sin for, so you'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. No proud person uh, goes to heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, and and so on. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers. Not peace between men, but peace between God and man. And so these are the qualities, the descriptions of a saved person. And we said just a few minutes ago, this is given primarily to the saved. But Jesus knows, like I know as a preacher, that I'm always speaking to a mixed audience. Chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you, will, you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Not spiritual brother, um, physical brother, fellow Jew. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? What's the log? The fact that he's not saved. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 is a side note to the unsaved who are listening. How do we know this? Verse 5, you hypocrite. Never in all the Gospels does Jesus call a saved person a hypocrite. It's always the lost. How about the end of the, the, end of the sermon? He gives a Gospel warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Verse 21, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then he just, greatest sermon ending of all time, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Who is the rock? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rain fell and the floods came. What is that? That's, that's your own death. That's your own mortality. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Your soul will not fall. You've been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So, yes, he preaches to the saved, a description of a saved person, but in there he warns the lost who are listening. This is a masterful sermon. So we would take the historical approach. It is meant for the ones who are listening. It is meant for you. It is meant for all of us. So there we go. Gospel of Matthew. I wish I had time for questions, but we'll, uh, I'll take some next time if any of you have any. So let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Father, for these who are here, who are listening. And, and I'm so grateful, Lord. This is a lot of material. And I pray that something in here, Lord, would strike our hearts and make us better worshipers of you. Thank you for the Gospel of Matthew, which stands as the great sentinel of the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. I pray that we would cherish Matthew and thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. That was a lot.